Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. Usually we start off by talking with each other about healthcare topics of interest, but since our special guest is a Renaissance man of sorts in this regard, we thought we would cede this space to him. And while the segment turns out to be longer than usual, it certainly is worth it. I'm excited to introduce Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Dr. Zeke Emanuel is a highly accomplished oncologist, bioethicist, policymaker, and author. Jointly appointed by the UPenn School of Medicine and Wharton School, Dr. Emanuel is the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives, the Diane and Robert Levy University Professor and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at UPenn. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and was one of 16 members of Joe Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board. Previously, Dr. Emanuel served as chair. All right, let's go. Let's uh, get to the facts. Previously, Dr. Emanuel oh served gosh. as chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health and special advisor to the Office of Management and Budget in the Obama White House, playing a leading role in passing the ACA or Obamacare. Drawing on his breadth of health expertise, Dr. Emanuel has published over 300 articles, authored or edited 15 books, and contributed op-eds to the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. I could go on and on with how much his work in healthcare finance, biomedical ethics, and global health has influenced our lives in positive ways, but I will start off by thanking you for joining us and asking you what non-COVID healthcare issue is top of mind for you these days? Non-COVID, but a healthcare issue. Um, whether there's anything we can do to actually fix the system. Every time we try to fix the system, either we slip back or we end up doing something. I mean, look, the Affordable Care Act has had big impact. 25 to 30 million people with insurance, healthcare spending as a percent of GDP has been flat for a decade, um, only went up because of uh, the need to spend on COVID. Uh, those are pretty impressive results. but. The system is still crappy. You know, when someone gets sick, they have to call to make sure that it's everything smoothed out. There's still a lot of junk in the system that we don't seem to be able to eliminate, whether it's, you know, administrative waste, unnecessary care, low value, inefficiently delivered care. It's like, you know, it, it frustrates you. So uh, that frustrates me a lot. On the other hand, a lot of positive things that you would think we should be investigating. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we tend to go slowly. So, you know, uh, um, and that frustrates me uh, that we can't seem to make progress on, you know, I don't know whether they're true or not or not, you know, like probiotics is a good example. You know, we, we now know that for treating C. diff, you know, putting bacteria back is probably gonna be good. Well, what about inflammatory bowel disease? What about a lot of these, you know, is gluten sensitivity, you know, we should be doing these trials and, and we should be pushing them out very rapidly. But it's taken for, you know, who knows forever. Let me ask you, one, one area that Harlan and I talked about early on in the podcast was whether there was going to be a prescription drug bill passed by Congress. And there's enormously strong bipartisan support. Um, so if you wanted to think about something that should be easier to pass, even if it was just insulin copays, for instance, you would think it would be that. Is that possible or is that just pie in the sky to believe that could happen? No, it should happen. And everything we know about Washington tells you it should happen. For one thing, 90 plus percent 
of the American public is supportive of drug price regulation. Both sides. This is a bipartisan issue. This isn't a polarization issue. When you have the support that high, uh, now, no doubt, when you get to specifics, it'll go down. But it shouldn't go down to 50%. um, And that's the kind of thing that gets passed. And the fact that we can't pass it, A, speaks to the power and the savvy of the pharma lobby in producing opposition. And it also speaks to the fact that in a polarized country, one or two votes in the Senate can make all the difference. It's right. I mean, Krista Sinema is sitting there. No one can figure out why she is opposed, but she's opposed. And, uh, you know, uh, I wish... Uh, in this case, you know, a little campaign finance grease would help, but it, it, it's really, it, it's very bizarre. Yeah, I think one, first of all, I just want to say thanks for joining us, and uh, people may not know in that introduction, one of the things you are is like an amazing friend, and, uh, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, but you, <laughs> I think everyone well, thank you. who is the fortunate enough to be friends with you knows, you know, how, how deeply committed you are to your friends, and, and and how well you you treat them. Well, thank you, thank you. What I wanted to ask you was, so let's get back to this trial thing, for example. So your interests are quite broad-based. I mean, they're about how do we improve research and how do we improve healthcare itself. But, you know, this frustration is one that I've shared too. You and I have talked a lot about, for example, PCORI, the the offshoot of the Affordable Care Act that was given $3 billion to try to produce evidence that would help guide healthcare. You know, what's hard is to get people to actually follow new models. And what I advocated when I was on the board was, let's do 200 rapid trials in the next two years. Short-term trials with outcomes that people experience. Insomnia, pain, you know, indigestion, chest pain, angina, a whole range of things with continuous outcomes. That is, on a scale, people can tell you, do they feel better or worse? And right now, they're trying a million different strategies in order to improve. And we can just drive that forward. We can be a pipeline to produce high quality evidence. And there was just a resistance because the organization, I would say was risk averse. You know, they wanted to make sure that they were gonna be refunded. They they tacked towards looking like ARC and NIH. And then they had, had adopted a lot of those uh, same propensities about the way that they approach research. As a result, their output can't be differentiated from what comes out from ARC or NIH, for example. And it's not to say that there aren't some good things that come out, but they don't really have a distinctive way of doing things. They didn't, they weren't able to experiment. And this was a situation where a federal funding went to an independent group that didn't need to get authorized every year by Congress. The notion was this would enable it to take risks. And even in that situation, we were unable to really crack you know, the, the case on this. Now, meanwhile, fast forward to today. I mean, PCORI continues to go. They did they were successful in getting more money, and they now look like ARC and, and NIH. But, but now we've got ARPA, which is Joe Biden's pet project to say, I'm going to try to do science a different way. Only a billion dollars, by the way. I mean, not that's not nothing, but it's, it's small potatoes with regard to really making a big impact. And it's couched within NIH, and they say it's going to report to the secretary. So it's got a little bit of independence. What, what's your view on whether this has any prospect of truly being a difference maker and what should they have done with ARPA to, to really ensure that if they want to try something new, it can work? Uh, well, uh, first, uh, having been a key architect of PCORI in the bill and 
extremely frustrated by it. And, and as you know, I've written several critiques of it and critiques of the exact projects it has taken on and not taken on. Um, and I, I concur totally with you that it, it has been more of a disappointment and it just hasn't done, I mean, to the extent that it's done anything, it's emphasized the patient-centered. Uh, it hasn't emphasized actually solving or getting data you know, you might not solve, but getting data rapidly on things people do care about and that influences their lives on a day-to-day basis, um, like pain and insomnia, as you point out. Um, I think everything at ARPA-H uh, depends upon the culture. Uh, remember, it's not supposed to do research in the usual sense. It's supposed to be more like a venture capital making bets on projects or companies that's supposed to develop novel, whether it's diagnostics or therapies. And so the culture has to be very different from the NIH. The NIH is peer reviewed. Um, it's become extremely risk averse. Uh, getting the first R01 is now over 44 years old. So you're getting people already past their creative, most productive moments, yeah. Uh, yeah. or innovative, I wouldn't say productive, creative moments, all the data. <laughs> um, and uh, so everything will depend upon the culture there. And I think, Harlan, you put your finger on something exceedingly important, which is failure. So if you're in the venture world, which I've been, uh, I would say, fortunate enough to be in for the last five years, I've learned a lot. And one of the things you learn is no one wants to fail, but you also have a high tolerance for failure. Otherwise, you're not taking enough risk. Um, and this combination of, you know, if you're going to take risk, you have to be willing to fail. You like to back smart people who lower their chance of failure, but you know, even smart people fail. And that's not something that it, the government is very hospitable to. Now, some of your readers may remember a senator from Wisconsin called William Proxmire, who otherwise was a fantastic senator, liberal Democrat, very smart guy, very interested in government programs. But he created this Golden Fleece Award where he would make fun of some government program. And, you know, about half of them were right. They were real fleeces. But some of them were actually really important programs that had a funny name, and he could make fun of them. But we actually needed them. And if they didn't work, that was OK. And if they did work, they were going to actually be big. Um, and I think unless ARPA-H has the right culture of being willing to fail, taking bets, you know, scanning the horizon, it's not going to have an impact. And I fear that structure precisely because it's in the NIH, which is not, uh, I, I worked at the NIH for uh, 13, 14 years. Um, it's not uh, a risky place, right? I, I was on the far end of willing to take a lot of risks, um, but it's not a place that is uh, hospitable to that uh, for a whole variety of reasons because of oversight among, congressional oversight among other things. I mean, many people will find that surprising. So you say our National Institutes of Health, which is supposed to be driving innovation in scientific medical research, is not taking a lot of risks on the research bets that they're making? Yes, I, I think actually quite the contrary. Everything we know suggests that they've become more conservative rather than more uh, innovative. 
Um, and I think COVID is an excellent example uh, where, you know, it's hard to say that point to something the NIH has done that has been transformative of uh, how we manage COVID patients, how we understand COVID patients. Almost all that innovation has come from other places and things the NIH should have done, uh, it never took the initiative on. Uh, whether it's you know getting the epidemiology and the prevalence of, of long COVID or trying to identify the optimal schedule for vaccination. I mean, they did a, a study on mix and match 458 patients. You got to be kidding me. And they didn't even do the right mix and match doses and other things. I mean, it just was uh, nothing short of terrible. Malpractice. One more quick thing on this story. I go back to Howie. So, so do you have hopes? Right now, the director of the NIH position is open. Francis Collins has stepped down. Of course, he's joined the White House uh, to help for in an interim role. But uh, do you have thoughts about this next director of the NIH? And do you have hopes that that person can help change this? Or it's just it's just the way the place works? Um, I think it is possible to change it. But that person would have to be innovative, him or herself. And pretty innovative. So I, if I were taking that job, my free advice to the incoming NIH director is I would take money, a substantial amount of money, but under a billion dollars. So in a $50 billion organization, we're talking about 1%. And I initially would devote it to young researchers, where young researchers are immediately after PhD or after one postdoc, no longer than five years, and give them a million dollars a year for seven years, and each year have a cohort of a thousand of those people to do whatever they're going to do and find you know the best thousand uh, by nomination, by hook or by crook, and that would I think dramatically shift the uh, the landscape. For one thing, it would change what medical schools hire. And, and academic health centers higher because these people would come in with a $7 million purse. Um, so they would be very valuable. And you would give them a very long runway to try new and innovative things. And yet you wouldn't dent the big behemoth that keeps going and doing its, its stuff. And I think that would be breathe new life into into the institution. So, so speaking of free advice, uh, you recently led a large group of individuals, including <laughs> Harlan and me, um, on on trying to come up with a COVID roadmap that would inform the government and really also the private sector on what the next steps are and what we need to do to be prepared for continued endemicity, for future pandemics, and and other respiratory. Uh, illnesses. How do you feel like that's been received to date, considering that we're still quibbling over trying to get a $10 billion bill passed? Um, and what do you think the hopes are for government doing the right thing in a situation like this? Uh, well, first of all, uh, to the extent that government was our main target, um, I think the reception has been remarkable. Uh, prior to the release of our document, we spent many hours with uh, uh, senior government officials giving them briefings and advice on how to, they should be thinking about things. Um, second, we uh, have had continued after they released their their strategic plan and we released our roadmap, we've had continued interaction with uh, various government agencies, whether it's about communication, 
indoor ventilation, uh, long COVID, shaping government policy extensively. So from the policy roadmap, strategic plan aspect, it's been very influential. And I think it's also helped shape, if I might be so bold, how the public looks at it, uh, filtered through the media and the reporters who've been covering COVID. Um, now, you know, the, the separate issue that you ask about is the money issue. Uh, I think that's bundled up with politics, unfortunately, and the, the negative sense of sort of politicization of, of the money. But more importantly, I think it's also bundled up. I think we've just learned something at this very moment, which is how long can people dramatically change their lives uh, before they scream uncle and have had enough of it? And I think we have our answer. It's exactly two years. I don't think it's just the United States that you're seeing this. We're getting back to normal. I don't care what the risk is. We're just going back to normal. You see this in Taiwan, where they're having a increase. They're going back to normal. You see this in Israel, in UK, in the Scandinavian countries. Uh, so I don't think it's America-specific. Two years is what you can ask people to do. That's crazy, short of, you know, it's a shooting war and you just can't go back to normal. And I think that's a, a you know, I, I think that's something we got to study, which is why is that the kind of limit that we can ask people to contort themselves on something that's, I think, still pretty serious. But whether we get enough money to do the things that we put in, I'm a little skeptical we will, uh, unless Build Back Better passes and this is somehow folded into, the, into that uh, legislation. One of the things that, that's come out is this issue around long COVID, and we had a chapter on that in the next normal. The Biden administration announced yesterday a, a large-scale government-wide initiatives to address long COVID. It was a great move, but, but many of us think underfunded, and there still were ways to go on it. We should give kudos to the administration for embracing uh, the idea that the government needs to do something about long COVID and actually pursuing some actions. But... But you were quoted as having some reservations about it also. Uh, what, what is it that you think they should have done? <laughs> uh, look, I, I agree with you, Harlan, and I, I, I think I said it's a, a good step forward, and I probably should have said it's a great step forward. Um, uh, but, <laughs> and, and I do, uh, I, I, um, I, it, it is probably a testament to my impatience here. I think we've been... Uh, looking at long COVID now for 20, 22 months. We've known that it exists. Um, and I think we should have done a lot more research and we need to do research urgently. So my view is what would make me, and I think that there are million, tens of millions of Americans like me, what would make me say, all right, we can live with COVID and, and the coronavirus. Um, I know that if you've got updated vaccinations, three shots, and soon to be four for some people, um, your chance of dying are exceedingly low, one in 30,000, something in that range. But I have no idea what the risk of long COVID is. You know, if it's 10%, one in 10, that would be outrageous, how long it would last, what I can do to reduce that risk, what treatments might be available. We don't have the answers to any of those questions. And I think this is a national emergency, and we really need to have much more intense focus on this and much more rapid 
development of not only understanding, but actually therapeutic intervention. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things, again, we I think we were happy that they signaled the need to strengthen support for these individuals, hotlines, being able to get compensation for disability, you know, putting yeah. all that, uh, pushing that forward. But it does get back to this question we were asking before, which is why can't research go faster? Why can't we galvanize the efforts? I mean, th this $1.2 billion the NIH got, the the efforts were started last fall, and we're still we're still not even being able to see all the materials that are being generated for the study they're gonna launch. It's having trouble enrolling. And again, it's not just them. It, it, in this country, we, we got to crack this, where we can figure out how to be more efficient and more agile with regard to knowledge generation. Again, back to PCORI, it was like, you know, who's gonna do the experiments about like how research could be done better, faster, cheaper? You know, and you know, one of my views is, if we can do it in partnership with patients, if we really like galvanize their interests and enthusiasm, they've got the most at stake of anyone. Yeah, and this is a case, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. This is a case where people are desperate. They're absolutely desperate, okay? Hang out the shingle. We wanna learn what your situation is, and we're gonna give you the option to enroll in a therapeutic trial. Do we have any idea if statins work, if SSRI inhibitors work? You know, take things off the shelf. Might some of them work? Yes. Might many of them fail? Yes. But at least we're trying something and learning from them. As it stands, we don't know. You know, there's evidence on all of these things, some evidence preliminary, but you know, the world is better if we know that ivermectin doesn't work, right? Or hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. People will stop taking it. They'll stop looking. It would be better if we learn. You know what? You know, this immune modulator, this anti-IL-6, that really works. So, so along those lines, though, I, I've always felt like the National Health Service of England or the UK, um, and for that matter, Israel, should have been performing vastly better than we are. Or for that matter, Kaiser Permanente in the United States or the VA system in the United States should have been performing vastly better in terms of extracting that type of information and answering questions for us. Um, and we are, we're two years and one month into the pandemic and we're still seeing sort of the bigger trials coming out on ivermectin. Uh, there's still a lot of things we have not been able to answer definitively. We've not been able to do different types of trials of mixing different vaccinations or using, for instance, Paxlovid in the setting of people with previous infection or people with previous vaccination. What do we have to do if it's not a national health service that's going to be able to solve that quickly? What do you think the incentives have to be in our system or changes to our structure that will allow us to get answers quicker? So two, two things. For, for, first of all, you and I may disagree a little bit, but, um, you know, uh, recovery in England, they've produced a lot of randomized trials pretty, I mean, they, they're the best place to have produced it. Right. And, you know, they steroids showing that hydroxychloroquine didn't work, blah, blah, blah. The Israelis also, you know, very good data. You may not agree with their idea of going to the fourth dose, et cetera, uh, the fourth vaccine. Uh, I do think there is a problem on the scheduling of vaccinations that no one's actually done the right studies. I, I find this like mind numbing. And now it's probably impossible to do given the level of vaccination. 
I have an idea. <laughs> Again, free advice to the next director of the NIH, which is one of our problems is getting big academic centers and hospitals to enroll, to agree on a common protocol and enroll. So my quintessential example is the convalescent plasma study. We were never able to do a randomized control trial. Everybody did their own schmutz, and then we had to amalgamate lots of stuff and then come to a conclusion. Um, rather than everyone, all right, here's the protocol, everyone's going to do the same protocol, and we're all going to put it into a database. And we can do it quickly because each one of the places started up if we just centralize it. So we need more, more I mean, one of the problems we suffer in our country, and I think you were hinting at this, Howie, is at least an NHS in Britain or Israel, they have less fragmentation, and they have more coordination across different parts of the system. So how do we get more coordination in the enrollment in clinical trials? Well, the best way to get the attention, as far as I can see, of academic centers and medical schools is we're taking 5% of your indirect costs, and we're going to link it to your participation in these clinical trials and your enrollment, meeting enrollment metrics based upon the number of patients you see in these clinical trials and you don't meet that, you don't quickly get these up and running and stuff, we're taking 5% away. Um, that gets attention a lot of people when serious money, you know, is at stake for them. And I think it's going to have to be something like that. You know, we've got uh, multi-center, we, we've got one review of multi-center trials, you don't have to review it, you get it up and running, you enroll the patients, and all the data is going into a common database that everyone can look at. Um, and you come and you propose your ideas for a trial. If they're accepted, you run the trial. If you know someone else's, you didn't win, you've got to put patients onto their trial. So you make it a collaborative effort um, and you make everyone have a stake in it. No, I think that that's great. Hey, let me pivot to something else I'm curious to get your thoughts on. So when I saw you tweeting recently, it's almost like every time you come out and say something, there are these people or bots or something that follow you around about the piece that you wrote years ago about your preference for the kind of care you would like to get when you hit 75 years old. And I mean, it's almost crazy. I mean, I don't think they understand what you wrote and, and they're mischaracterizing what you said. And But it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know, you've got this following, but maybe you could explain to people what you wrote and then are, are you still getting flack for it? Because I, actually I thought it was a it was a very important piece and uh, very thought-provoking. But uh, go ahead. Maybe you can just explain what you did. So, so first of all, I, 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 I should, you know, I view part of my uh, uh, role in, in uh, uh, life is to be provocative um, and to uh, make people think. That's part of the reason I'm a professor and I love to teach is, you know, um, and I tell my students at the start of every semester, I don't want you doing any social media about that because I'm going to ask some really off-the-wall questions because I want you to think. So the, the main thing when I look at a life, not at a moment, but over the arc, that I worry about is either becoming, you know, just repeating the same thing over and over again and, and not being thinking creatively and just slowing down and, and sort of um, becoming infirmed mentally, as well as physically and, and you know, becoming a burden in, in that way and also dominating how people remember me. When you look at the data 
about people, what you find is a very, very, very consistent peak of, of innovation and productivity, as we were talking about, in the late 30s, early 40s. Um, and then a sort of, uh, uh, it's not quite that people fall off a cliff, but it is somewhere between 70 and 75, almost everyone stops. Uh, working, being productive, and if they continue to publish in things, it tends to be rehash of what went before. So one of the things I have I thought about for that article is, you know, what happens to us? We lose our friends, they're dying, we're dying. Um, we lose our curiosity. Uh, um, you know, we've seen it all, we get cynical, blah, blah, blah. And I, I think that there's a whole series of things that set in at 70, 70, 75, and the data confirm it. If you just look at productivity, you look at how sharp faculty are. I think Yale Med School did a study about you know people after 70 not being as, as keen. Uh, um, and so I'm worried about that for myself, and I don't want to live like that, and I don't want my children to, and my grandchildren to remember me as a sort of doddering old blah, blah. Um, so what did I say? Did I want to die at 75? No, I said I will not take medication or medical intervention where the purpose is to prolong my life. Now, if I were on a ski slope and someone ran into me, like happened to actually a friend of ours, broke my hip, I would get that fixed. That's not about prolonging my, that's about you know getting rid of the pain and being mobile. Um, so it's a very fine and important distinction that was, you know, if you don't read the article, you miss it. And even if you do read the article, but you're not a good reader, you'll miss it. Um, that's, that's my principle. And, and by the way- And people do still harass me about it. Yeah, yes. and by the way, like, you know, you read the article, you say many, many times, 75 years is all I want to live. But the editor chose to title the article, Why I Hope to Die at yeah. 75. <laughs> Uh, which just goes to show that if you're looking for clicks and attention, editors will do what they have to do. So you have to actually read the article to know what you wrote because the title does not convey it. So I've, I've got one question here at the end. I, I just want to get some enlightenment since we're, we have your attention. So one of the things that has always impressed me about you is your ability to tell people hard truths, but in some ways to maintain your relationships over time so that, you know, that there's a lot of challenge in saying uncomfortable truths to people and many people can get offended and angry and upset and so on but you seem able to navigate a, a, a way to be able to say the truth uh, and and yet still remain connected to folks and to have relationships and and not have that undermine you know the connection that you have with people. how are you able to do that uh you asked me this question a while ago, and I've been thinking about it, Harlan. So I'm going to give you my best, uh, my best uh, answer to that. So one of the things I reflected after you asked me, I, I don't know, a couple months ago you asked me this question. And um, so I, I, um, as you know, I have very strong opinions, and I'm not shy about saying my strong opinions. On the other hand, it's not my way or the highway. So I know I reflected upon my daughters. I would tell them things, you know, you ought to do this. And they would say, thanks, Dad, I'm doing the other. <laughs> um, and it didn't, never ruptured our relationship. I never insisted, you got to do what I said. It's your life. I'm offering you free advice. <laughs> and I know that my advice isn't always good for people. I've been wrong about things. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I was that way with my father who gave me plenty of advice and, and, and he was wrong and I did my thing. But I never make it, it's my way or the highway. Um, and I think that's one of the things which I will tell you what, what I think. I'll tell it to your face. Um, I won't stab you in the back. You're, not, you're never like, is he going to, you know. No, I'll tell it right to your face. But I also don't make it the, uh, you're taking my advice is critical to our relationship. I'm happy if you do something different. I'm happy if you have a different view than me. And as a matter of fact, I enjoy that with people around me because I know my view. I, I've had a lot of time to test it out. I want to hear what you think. And if you have a better view, I change my mind all the time. If you have a better view, great. Let's discuss it and you tell me how I should change my view. Um, and uh, so I do think that issue of I don't feel threatened by you having it take going off somewhere else. It, it doesn't bother me. As a matter of fact, I, I like I like it when people, I, I think diversity is an important thing and a genuine diversity. And I'm not one of these, you know, it's diversity as long as you agree with me. Um, I, 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 I like that. Now, there is something I don't like, and it will end my relationship with someone. And uh, it, one is telling me something and doing the opposite and concealing it from me. And the other is just uh, 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 stabbing me in the back with a smile on your face. Yeah, just punch me in the chest. <laughs> I can take that. Stabbing me in the back where I have to figure out what, you know, it's like, eh, just just be a man about it. Or, uh, I, I guess that's no longer a, uh, an acceptable phrase. But just, just tell me what you think and why you are yeah, doing yeah. this. I can take it. As I like to say to people, I have two brothers. There is nothing anyone has ever said in my life that my brothers haven't said to me, and worse. <laughs> it, 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 disagreeing is not the problem. Just tell me what you think. Well, and I think it's just that you say, I'll tell you what I think to your face, and you tell me what you say to your face. You're not going to be surprised I said something different to someone behind your back. I, I think that I think <laughs> that makes a big difference. It does. Uh, Harlan and I usually like to wrap up talking about what inspires us or keeps us up at night in non-healthcare news. And, between the war in Ukraine, the dysfunction in Congress, climate change, and Will Smith's slap heard around the world, uh, there's a lot to choose from. But wondering if there is something that is either inspiring you or worrying you in particular right now that our listeners might not be focused on. I think um, the, the moment is um, alternating between depressing and, and, and optimistic. So I'm in general an optimistic person. I do think the threat to democracy is, and again, this is not domestic, it's worldwide. And so I think we need to think about it uh, in a way that we haven't that is larger than America, than the United States. And I do think that is a serious, serious problem. Democracy is uh, inherently defective um, as we've seen in many, many places like Hungary just most recently, um, where you can honestly elect someone who can then corrupt the system, uh, corrupt the judiciary, corrupt the administrative agencies, corrupt the media. And I think it's a fragile thing. Now, why do we get infatuated with these autocrats, I think is also, and I think there, we're at a moment where Everyone is anxious about the future. Part of that anxiety is a sort of existential threat from climate change. I'm actually not a climate 
pessimist. I'm a climate optimist because I do think there's a technological. So we have all the technologies we need. Maybe we need a little more for carbon sequestration. It's a, it's a deployment problem. And that goes back to something we said at the start about the healthcare system, which is it's hard in the modern world to do things. And that, I think, is what has people uh, really anxious and depressed. We've got a solutions here, right? Between renewable energy, electric cars, fixing our farming system, we have most of the solutions right here. And yet we can't seem to deploy them. And the sacrifice needed, we don't seem to be willing to take on. And this keeps me up at night to figure out why is this moment, 2020, different from, say, the 1950s, when it seemed possible, you know, want to create a highway system. I don't know whether it's a good or bad thing, but want to create, we created a highway system. Uh, we created a space endeavor. We don't seem to be able to do that the same way. And I do think that actually is a serious source of the anxiety that people are feeling and feeling like we're trapped. And, and that leads, I think, to, well, you know, these autocrats who are appealed, the strong man, they're going to change things. Now, you know, Putin's doing a good job of trying to undermine that image, but I do think the threat to democracy and this ang pervasive social anxiety is, is, uh, is it, it keeps me up at night and I don't know that I have a solution. Well, certainly, I mean, all of us are, are children of immigrants and uh, we are a nation of mostly immigrants and it is ironic that the immigration issue ends up being such a divisive one given that central theme. And also, given, given how important they are, not, not have been, forget the have been, yes, have been, but are at this moment to creating new startups, creating jobs, revitalizing the we, we have a labor shortage. There's a solution to a labor shortage, right? When lots of people are knocking at your door to come in, we have a solution. And these are not, I mean, you know, these are very hardworking people. It's crazy. Well, look, I, I just want to thank you, Zeke. You have, as Harlan said, Harlan's known you for longer because you were in med school with Harlan, but I've been fortunate to know you for 20 years now. You have been an amazing friend. You're a great person to work with. And, and you know, in sincerity, you are an absolute leader. <laughs> no, you're a real leader. You actually uh, lead you know, by intention. And as, as our, our friend Vivek Murthy says, you lead with love. Um, and you're a you're a smart guy. Oh, now it's getting really it's getting people. really uh, sentimental. Here, I'm man. just I, well. I will. I was. I would say, Howie. One of the great things I do have actually are friends like you and Harlan, who are great, brilliant. And one of the things I've learned about leadership is it's dead easy. Hire people who are fantastically smart. Get out of the way, and when they have good ideas, champion them. But I've been department chair. I've run administrative programs, and the easy, easy, easy to do. And the best thing is just hire really smart people. And it's fun. A, it's fun, and B, it becomes enormously successful. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Really. Great. Super. This has been a pleasure. Right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Howie, that was amazing. We really enjoyed talking with Zeke, but, but we've taken more time than usual. So, so let's just go to the end and, and thank everyone for listening. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter.
I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Sherry Wang, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.